Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, Ken discusses different eschatological approaches as we continue this series on end times theology. And Ken, for the benefit of those who haven't been with us for the first two, maybe it'd be good to cover some ground and then tell us where we're headed today. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Well, what really brought me into uh, a discussion of eschatology was largely um, the issue that when it's done poorly, it creates apologetic challenges for the church. And um, I think that that's largely in two areas. And the last couple programs, we talked about the challenge that is posed when you engage in eschatology in an irresponsible way. Um, and of course, what I mean by that is excessive speculation and particularly date setting. Uh, it's an unbiblical practice. We shouldn't do it. Uh, Jesus told us that no one knows the day or the hour, and yet people continue to do it. Uh, we talked about William Miller in the 19th century. Uh, we talked about uh, Harold Camping in the 20th century, but I could name others. Um, it is something that evangelicals fall into, and uh, non-Christians look at this date setting, and they don't think, well, that's just a, you know, that that's just a, that person's individual ideas. No, they think, well, um, the Bible must be wrong. So if you do theology badly, and eschatology is a very important branch of theology, a study of the end times or last days, eschatos is the Greek word for last, uh, you can get into problems. I think another area, Joe, that stands out to me that we're doing it badly is when it becomes increasingly divisive. Um, and last time we talked a little bit uh, about that topic that, uh, you know, evangelical Christians um, clash over these issues. And I think there's a couple points that we talked about last time that are relevant to this. Uh, many evangelical Christians have not studied the field, and therefore they're not aware that Christendom is divided over things like the millennium, issues like the rapture, the tribulation period. So Christianity didn't begin in the 20th or 21st century. Christians have been thinking about these issues. And some of the great Christian thinkers, uh, Augustine was very interested in eschatology, um, but other thinkers, Luther, Calvin, Wesley, have wrote about these. So I think that we should study the field and I think when you do study the field, at least when I did, I quickly came to realize that maybe I should hold my views tentatively. Um, it's a difficult issue. We're going to talk about some of the difficulties that go into interpreting properly the eschatological issues. Uh, but I think maybe we should hold our views a bit more uh, tentatively. That doesn't mean you don't affirm truth. But it means that you affirm truth, but you also recognize the importance of unity and charity. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul brings us all up short when he says, look, you could understand 
all mysteries and have all knowledge. But if you're not loving, you're nothing. And wow, that's a that's a shot, you know, in in the chest to tell us that we need to conduct ourselves in a particular way. So I think when apologetics is, I think when eschatology is done poorly, it creates apologetic challenges. Date setting would be a big one. Being divisive would would be another one. And uh, and this is where I want to begin our program now. Um, Inevitably, non-Christians observe uh, how Christians understand and explain the faith. I was reading an article by one atheist. He happened to be uh, a former Christian, so he went through a process of deconversion. And one of the objections that he had to Christianity was he thought God really didn't do a very good job of explaining what Christians should believe. So Christians have all kinds of different beliefs and and a a God that was rational, uh, a God that we could take seriously, he could have given additional information and resolved all these issues. Well, I want to say two things to that. I want to say, number one, there is a mere Christian eschatology. And that, that idea, I think, is often lost on both Christians and non-Christians. We talked about that, the second coming. All Christians affirm that, conservative, theological-oriented Christendom, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox. Uh, So a belief in the blessed hope, as Paul refers to it, the second coming, followed by the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment of humankind, and then uh, the creation, the new creation in the eternal state. So what I would say to non-Christians who think Christians have very, very different beliefs, oftentimes those differences, there is still a core a set of beliefs that they affirm. So I think that's that's important. And I think it's important for Christians to realize that, look, you might be an amillennialist or you might be a postmillennialist or or a premillennialist, but you still affirm this uh, mere Christian eschatology. So, Joe, those were some of the points we covered last time. And I think that they are very, very relevant. Um, I go into a lot of detail on those in my little book, Christian Endgame. Uh, careful thinking about the end times. So I don't tell people what to believe. I simply present, I think, what are critical ideas and offer um, ways of kind of thinking through them and discerning them. Wonderful. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's begin this program by talking about some of the challenges that come to us in the eschatological context. And so I want to talk about three major eschatological differences. Now, again, the backdrop of that is we know there is a core eschatology that we all affirm, but uh, the Bible poses challenges. And, And again, skeptics come along and they say, well, why can't God write a Bible where everybody can understand it? Well, there are challenges to that. Remember, God is infinite and eternal. We are finite and temporal. God, to some extent, has to condescend. Uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas said, 
all of our knowledge about God is analogical. John Calvin said, God has to speak like baby talk to us. So there are challenges. And one of the ways in which God reveals uh, himself and great events in scripture, uh, sometimes he does historical accounts. Uh, sometimes we get uh, wisdom literature, but the Bible also has what we call apocalyptic literature. And the reason for that is, again, sometimes God is using symbols. He is, he is kind of speaking to us in a way that we can understand. So let's talk about three of those challenges. That first one is interpreting the Bible's apocalyptic literature. That is a genre. It's contained in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. We find it in the last book of the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. So it is in symbolic language uh, that poses challenges. How do we interpret the Bible fairly, accurately, uh, in light of different genres? How, how do we work through this? So hermeneutics is a very important element. It's also possible, Joe, that some of the differences we have in Christendom come down to hermeneutical issues. How do we properly interpret maybe the symbolic or metaphorical in light of maybe the more literal? And so this is uh, kind of a difficult area. Because of these challenges, Christians have taken different approaches to the apocalyptic books. Uh, I'll explain these a little bit later, but some people adopt a preterist view some a historic, historicist view, others idealist, and then even the further one, a futurist view. So Christian divisions about these issues have also to do with that fundamental issue of how do we understand the Bible rightly and appropriately. And I think one of the uh, very important elements in all of this in terms of apologetics, Joe, is that... Um, uh, Christians, uh, Christians need to be theologians. Mm -hmm. uh, every Christian should have a basic knowledge of uh, theological principles. And right at the very start of that is biblical theology. And a part of biblical theology is understanding how we approach scripture, how we understand it in context uh, and things of that nature. And so uh, I think one of the best examples we can have toward non-Christians is in being careful about how we handle Scripture. Yeah, uh, But again, you know, that takes some time. Yeah. Uh, as you're talking there, it occurs to me that one of the things you emphasize over and over on this podcast, you've been talking about it for many years now, is the idea that we are tied to a historic Christian faith. Uh, it's not just... Uh, good thinkers that are contemporary or that go back a hundred years or or less. In fact, I think you've joked before that people consider C.S. Lewis to be uh, back then. <laughs> but uh, all of this to say that uh, it would be wise to see what the church has wrestled with. Uh, and they have talked about, they have struggled with these issues. So just a, just a point of emphasis that uh, you've talked about this before and it would behoove us to take into account what other people have said in the past. You know, theology 
uh, again, I think uh, two mistakes you can make. Uh, you alluded to the first one, and, and that is it's very easy to view Christianity merely as your personal relationship with God. Now, I don't want to fault that. Uh, God changes people's lives. I've met people who were addicted to drugs. I've met people who were trapped in all kinds of difficulties, and God's Spirit worked powerfully in their life. And so there certainly is the experience of our relationship with God. But Christianity is also a worldwide movement that has been around for 2,000 years. And you're right. I mean, uh, some of the great Christian thinkers, Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, have had a lot of thought about this. And many of the issues uh, that we face today were faced before. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about chronological snobbery. That's the tendency to think that our time is superior to times in the past. Um, I, I know when in working with our science colleagues, with Fuzz, with uh, Hugh, with Jeff, uh, there's often the emphasis on the cutting edge. What What is the last word, you know, the most recent word? In theology, some of the best work may have already been done, and certainly laying down things like creeds and confessions is critical. But part of theology is understanding the biblical text. But part of theology is also historical theology, understanding what is said in history, philosophical theology. So these are important. Now, uh, again, part of, the, part of the challenge is human language, God revealing himself. And so when people uh, express kind of impatience, well, why couldn't God give us a Bible where there's less uh, differences? I think if he had, uh, they would fault us for being cultists who all walk in lockstep. I don't know that any view will ever please the skeptic. But obviously, when God reveals himself, and we believe that he has in Scripture— it is an infinite, eternal God revealing himself, and so we have to work at it. And, Joe, I don't think that um, differences in teaching is always a bad thing. Hmm. I personally think the Protestant Reformation improved Roman Catholicism. Now, some of my Catholic uh, friends and colleagues, uh, they probably would differ with that statement. But I would say, hey, look, I mean, even the counter uh Reformation, which was the Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation, I think it did improve. And I certainly think that the Western Church has learned from the Eastern Church. I think that even within Protestantism, uh, we're going to talk a little later about covenant theology and dispensational theology. I think there have been benefits from those ways of thinking coming together. So, uh, I thought Hugh Ross had a very good point, and that is that differences are not always bad. They help, they challenge us. They can work on us. Of course, we can handle it poorly and become very divisive. Uh, but again, we come back to that those three points, truth, unity, and charity. So symbolic literature in and of itself is challenging. How do we interpret it in light of the literal text? Uh, that's that first point. The interpretation of the Bible's apocalyptic literature poses problems. Now, I mentioned these 
interpretive models that have been proposed in terms of understanding the book of Revelation in particular. One of them is known as the preterist view. I think we can simply define that as that some of the fulfillment of eschatological events could have taken place in the first century. So you have partial preterist and full preterist. I think the full preterist position is an extreme position, but a partial preterist view is pretty popular. So remember in the first century, the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. There are catastrophic events that happen in that very century. It is possible that the book of Revelation is speaking both to uh, primitive Christianity, uh, first century Christianity, but yet it also applies to the future. So a preterist interpretation would see the possibility of uh, first century fulfillment of, of events, the temple being destroyed, great persecution. I mean, uh, Nero was a was an absolute, uh, uh, you know, crazy man. So it's possible that some of that apocalyptic interpretation uh, is both already and not yet. So that's one view. The historicist view, this is where symbolic events are fulfilled in Christian history. So some would look back through the long history. We're going to talk a little later about amillennialism. Amillennialism is, I think, the most distinct millennial view because it's very unlike both postmillennialism and premillennialism in affirming that there's no literal uh, thousand-year reign. Rather, it's a symbolic reference to the church era between Jesus's first and second coming. So some may look at the historicist and say, hey, uh, the book of Revelation, apocalyptic literature, maybe is also speaking to the history of the church. A third view is called the idealist view. That's where present fulfillment of spiritual events happen now. And again, we've ta already talked about the already, not yet. And then finally, the futurist. This would be the view that future fulfillment of real events that are happening so again, these are, I think there's overlap between these views, but it does tell you, I think something very important, Joe, that we are people of the book. And by people of the book, uh, to be a reader, uh, you, have to, you have to interpret, you have to understand. Uh, and, and even uh, in the Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic traditions that would place tradition or the teaching magisterium of the church in the case of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they still are interpreting a book and they're interpreting that book in, in light of church tradition. So I, again, would say that being a Christian uh, involves a certain level of learning and study and reflection. And I don't, I don't think that Christians ought to simply take the position that, well, I'll just follow what my teacher says at the church, or I'll follow what the bishop says. Um, I think both of those are very important sources of authority. Uh, hopefully our pastor is, uh, has, has a gift of being able to teach his congregation. And in those branches of Christendom that have bishops, 
I, I think that oversight is uh, very, very important. I know in the Anglican church I attend, uh, the bishop comes a couple times a year. We get to meet him and talk with him, and uh, he interacts with us. But I think every Christian um, should then be able to read and engage Scripture. And so uh, study is very important. Um, you know, intellectual people can certainly succumb to the, the great sin of pride, but um, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that God wants us to use our thinking caps. Yeah. So that's that's that first issue. Yeah. Ken, for somebody who is not familiar with these views, but yet they would hold to something like the Apostles' Creed, where Jesus is going to return and judge the living and the dead. I wonder if you might encourage that person a little bit who's... Uh, hearing this for the first time and wondering, well, which of these, are all of these okay in, in Ken's uh, mere Christian eschatology, or is one better? And I know you're not trying to tell people what, what, what view to hold, but just kind of in general, for someone who might not be familiar, but is wondering, where do I stand on this if I believe Jesus is returning, but I haven't figured all this out? No, I'm, I think that that's a, that's a great question, and um, you play a very critical role of bringing those questions that maybe a layperson would ask. The reason I wrote that little book, Christian Endgame, is I have long thought that there is a need for what I would call a clear, careful, and objective primer. Uh, an introduction. And the reason I wrote it the way I did, and it, it's part of uh, a culture that you and I and Dave, I think to some degree have developed in our long podcast uh, history. And that is not telling people uh, what to believe, but but helping them have the equipment, the toolbox. Uh, I, I really do encourage people to get a hold of my book, not because I want to sell the books, although, you know, when you when you write a good book, I don't think there's anything to feel bad about wanting it to sell or wanting people to, to draw attention to it. But what I really do like about the book is I think it is a place to begin. Uh, I talk about some of these issues like what are what are the pitfalls you want to avoid? You don't want to you don't want to engage in date setting. You want to be very careful about being overly divisive. I'm trying to offer uh, ways that you can evaluate these. And and again, I don't think the Bible ever intended us to view eschatology in terms of speculation. I think much much a greater emphasis in Scripture is that it's for us to live a holy life. It's for us to recognize we are vulnerable, we are limited, uh, we're mortal creatures. Um, I think as biblical eschatology is to encourage hope, give you a, a reason for seeing that, hey, maybe things aren't looking very good right now. And there've been many times in church history where Christians have faced persecution and difficulty. But eschatology is there to tell you that God is sovereign and it is his kingdom. So uh, I don't, I don't uh, necessarily think all people are going to look at apocalyptic literature and, 
you know, have to decide between a preterist or a historicist or idealist or futurist. But I think you could read my little book. That would then lead you to, I think, be able to ask the, the appropriate questions. And again, what I do is on controversial issues, I offer what I think are the strongest points and what I think are the weaknesses, because I think all the views uh, have challenges. So I'm hoping more people will read that little book because I, I wrote it really as a teacher. Um, and I think that's something that we need in our churches today in the evangelical Protestant movement. George Barna, one of the great Christian polists out there, you know, he has said that only a small percentage of people seem to hold a biblical worldview. And I don't think that's getting any better. Mm. So those would be some of the things that I I would encourage our layperson. Um, uh, again, I like to I like to write, but I like to write in a way that maybe I can reach a, a, a spectrum of people, people who are new to the faith, people who have uh, maybe a long time association with the faith. Okay, that second, I'm talking about three major eschatological differences. Uh, the first one is the challenge of apocalyptic symbolism. The second one is, Joe, the relationship between Israel and the church. And I think that this is a big challenge. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges in interpreting and understanding the Bible is, how do I come to appreciate and understand how the Old and New Testaments work together. And when it's applied to eschatology, then the question is, well, wait a second, the Hebrew Bible, uh, Yahweh's people were the Jews. Uh, Jesus came, some of the Jews embraced the Messiah, Jesus. As the church developed in the book of Acts, uh, the Christian movement grew to include Gentiles. And of course, now Christianity is a cosmopolitan. It's a, it is an international faith. Uh, people of all uh, ethnicities, uh, groups of people. Uh, it, it, it is growing in Africa. It's growing in Asia. Christianity may be declining, however, in Europe and North America. But uh this question of, okay, if, if, if the cradle of Christianity was Judaism, if the source of the New Testament is found in the Old Testament, how do we approach that uh, difference? And again, I think this is seen in the schools in evangelical Protestantism. If you hold a dispensational view, which I'll define in a few minutes, they have a real sensitivity to how uh, the church in Israel are to relate. Then if you hold a covenantal view, well, wait a second, there is some application of the things that were applied to Israel in the Old Testament are applied to the church in the New Testament. And so this issue is uh, a debated one. Uh, a uh, theologian that I appreciate very much, contemporary theologian. He's endorsed one of my books, uh, Gerald McDermott. He happens to be an Anglican theologian, but he makes the point that even if you hold a covenantal view, you don't necessarily have to have a full replacement 
he thinks that there may be a basis for Israel and the church. But that's a that's that's very much a uh, a challenging question of how we understand those issues. But here is, I think, a blessing that's come out of that. Uh, dispensational thinkers, uh, for the most part, coming out of places like uh, Dallas Seminary, Talbot, uh, the graduate school at Biola, uh, other places in the country uh, in America have had a dispensational perspective. But dispensationalism has interacted with covenant theology. Uh, lots of Reformed, Lutheran, Anglicans hold more of a covenantal view. Well, um, what I think is a very positive element is that you have what we now call progressive dispensationalism. Um, that dispensationalism has has evolved, has, has uh, had more interaction. This is that point I'm making earlier that differences are not always bad. We learn from each other. We can learn to appreciate one another. And so people like Robert Sosi, who was a, a Christian writer, taught at uh, Talbot School of Theology for 50 years. Remember that Biola, uh, a school both you and I, Joe, both graduated from, uh, was known as the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Well, it's it's grown a lot in a hundred years. It has become really a uh, robust liberal arts university uh, with various graduate schools. So uh, you have now progressive dispensationalism, and they're holding on to certain dispensational ideas, but they've developed in light of you know kind of covenantal issues. So that second issue. Number one is, how do we interpret the symbolic language of the apocalyptic literature? Number two, how do we make sense of Israel and the church? And uh, again, that, that isn't always an easy thing. Uh, I don't think we should think of the church has completely replaced Israel. But I think we have to take hold of the idea that there has been a rejection on the part of, by and large, the Jewish people, although I'm greatly excited how many um, Messianic Jews have come to faith, but they're also very sensitive to these issues. Uh, hey, I held a Jewish faith. I have now embraced Yeshua, the Messiah. How do I then make sense of the Old and New Testaments? And so that that's a, that's a challenge. Uh, and I think we want to be sophisticated and careful uh, especially in light of non-Christians. Um, I think we want to I think we want to model a, a very serious, uh, reflective and and good good thinking. You know, I I will tell you, Joe, I I think when it comes to persuading people of the truth of Christianity, I think the most important element is grace. Mm. And uh, I don't think a person can, uh, choose to follow Jesus without grace. Now, uh, how does God use his grace? I think he uses it, for example, uh, through loving, caring people. I also think he uses it through careful, reflective thinking. Uh, all of those are, are very important elements. And so how we model our differences 
uh, along with, you know, being loving. Uh, I was on Twitter just a couple days ago and a guy said on Twitter, he said that um, he said that love your neighbor is not the gospel. Uh, so I wrote a response and said, well, I think Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 reflects the gospel. We're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, not by works, but saving grace motivates us to uh, live a life of faith and love, and that involves loving your neighbor. So, uh, you know, I think that how we handle these issues has a lot to uh, do with how people are are influenced. I like to say, I want a hard head and a soft heart. Hmm. I want a sophisticated mind and a compassionate heart. Okay, uh, Joe, let's look at the third major eschatological difference, and now it now it relates to the question of the millennium. So, a, a very challenging, critical area of theology is is the millennium. How do we understand the millennium? It comes in Revelation 20, and I'll, I'll read it in uh, just a few minutes, but it refers to the thousand-year reign of Christ, uh, and Christians have taken differing understanding of, of this issue. And of course, it's not just the millennium. It's how the millennium relates to the second coming. It's how the millennium relates to issue like the rapture, uh, the tribulation period, all of those issues uh, come together as a type of uh, package. Now, I want to go back to a point that I made in some of the previous shows, and I, I think it will be good for us as we as we move forward. Again, I want to remind everybody of thinking of Christianity as a worldview. Uh, one way of thinking of the Christian worldview as four successive events. It's not the only way of thinking of the Christian worldview, but I, I think it's an important one. And I think it's a helpful one, that the message of Christianity, God's revelation, involves first creation, then fall, then redemption, then consummation. Now, uh, think about this, that idea of fall. I, I was reading, uh, uh, there's a particular atheist I've followed for some time. He has a very sharp cookie. Uh, he knows how to marshal evidence. He knows how to communicate a naturalistic worldview. Uh, I want to do a show on that topic later, so I'm not going to go into a lot of details now. But interestingly, Joe, he said he thought the best argument for Christianity was original sin. Hmm. He says, I'm not all that persuaded. I don't know that any of the arguments for God really work. But when Christians talk about original sin, that hits home. Um, I've always felt that way myself, that uh, I think a powerful way of thinking about Christianity is the Christian view of human nature. Uh, now, that includes the image of God, the creation in the image of God, then the fall, right? And the fall is not something uh, that's a minor issue. Uh, I differ with some Christians because I not only believe that the fall involves death, physical death, and moral corruption, but it also involves guilt in Adam. And that's an area where uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians 
uh, reject, and many evangelicals uh, have problems with it too. And it is a challenging issue of how can God hold me accountable for what for what Adam did? But fall is a is a critical component here. Then the good news, the bad news is the fall. The good news is redemption in Christ. God loves us enough to send his very own son, Yahweh, in human flesh, becomes our savior. But then there's that consummation. And now here's my point. Uh, is the millennium and the second coming, is that part of redemption or is that part of consummation? And I think it becomes critical here as we think of the millennial views. Uh, in, in my view, the one of the major differences between what we'll talk about is premillennialism and amillennialism is whether the second coming uh, is a is an extension of redemption or whether it's the beginning of the consummation of all things. So uh, this idea of millennium and how we think about it, uh, Joe comments about that before I read Revelation 20 as it relates to the millennium? No, I'm tracking. Go ahead. Okay, well, here's this passage. This is Revelation 20, 4 through 6. I'm reading from uh, the NIV. Uh, and of course, uh, conservative Christians believe that the author of the book of Revelation was the Apostle John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and wrote the epistles of John. There are multiple Johns in early Christianity, but this is a, this is a theologically uh, conservative perspective on who the author was, and I certainly believe it was John. Well, it writes, uh, John writes, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads uh, or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Uh, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has had no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, that's a that's an extraordinary passage. Uh, again, I, I think it's so important to think of eschatology as as a sense of hope and, and purpose. I am more and more convinced, Joe, that people to to live a healthy life to live a life of flourishing you need hope uh, you need water and food and oxygen yes but you also need a sense that your life is is purposeful and we have many people uh, today who face challenges in light of things like the pandemic there's a lot of people particularly young people who feel depressed uh, who lack a sense of hope and meaning and purpose, I think eschatology is a very important part of that. I think that's why uh, the New Testament has so much to say about the Lord's return. Um, so this, this is a very important uh, area of theology. Now, there are four basic views of the millennium. 
Um, you have historic premillennialism. You also have dispensational premillennialism. They hold most of the things in common, but there are some important differences. Then you have postmillennialism and you have amillennialism. I should point out you have two views even in postmillennialism. You have more of a Puritan approach and you have more of a theonomic approach. And those are quite relevant to Reformed and Presbyterian churches per se. But let me just give you a broad definition, then we can look at uh, some of the differences here. Um, I want to make sure that we keep these shows at a reasonable length. So let me simply give you some brief definitions. His uh, historic premillennialism believes in a literal thousand-year reign. So Christ will return in his second coming, and uh, he will set up a physical uh, reign here on the earth. Now, uh, premillennialists uh, usually differ from the dispensationalists in a couple different ways. The historic premill people uh, believe that uh, the rapture will come after the tribulation, not before the tribulation. Uh, that's a that's a major dividing point between dispensational uh, premillennialism and uh, historic premillennialism. And you would have debates, too, about how much of the uh, uh, the Hebrew practices of the Old Testament will be applied during the millennium. Uh, a distinctive feature we will come back to this in the next program. A distinctive feature of dispensational premillennialism is some of what God did in the Old Testament among the Hebrew people we'll see in uh, practices during the millennium. And again, that there that's there's a lot of complex issues, but I'll, that's all I'll say on that. The postmillennial, right? You put the word post. Jesus doesn't come before the millennium; he comes after the millennium. Uh, so the postmillennial view would be that the last long period of church history, maybe maybe specifically a thousand years or, or maybe thereabouts, uh, the Christian message will be so successful, it will reach the ends of the earth and the world will be brought to Christ and then Christ will come. That's the postmillennial view. We'll talk about its strengths and its weaknesses in our next program. Then you have, I think, the most distinctive view. Uh, it's the amillennial view. You put an A in front of a Greek word and you negate it. If you're a theist, you believe in a personal God. If you're an atheist, you don't believe uh, in a personal God. Amillennialism says that there's no uh, literal uh, reign of Christ on the earth. Rather, we should understand it as referring to the period of the church age between Christ's first and second comings. So, Joe, that's just uh, the beginning. In our next program, we'll take a little deeper dive uh, to some of these issues. I do want to recommend a couple books. Mm -hmm. um, I want to recommend my book because it's a teaching primer. And again, uh, I don't tell you what to believe. Christian Endgame. Uh, you can get it here at uh, the RTB store. I hope you'll do that. But if you can't, you can go over to Amazon. Another very good general introduction is by uh, the Baptist theologian Miller J. Erickson. I think a, a very fine thinker. Uh, he has a book entitled A Basic Guide to Eschatology, A Basic Guide 
eschatology. And then Donald G. Bloch, he has a book entitled The Last Things. Good introduction to these ideas. Great stuff. Thanks, Ken. I feel like I've gotten a great overview on these three podcasts and can't wait for the next one. I hope our listeners uh, feel the same way. Uh, uh, and just another plug for your book. Uh, I remember when you wrote it, uh, it's been, uh, when did you say, Ken? It's been 2013, like a decade. it was published. So it's been a decade, yeah. Uh, I, I was part of the team that edited it, and I thought, this is really good. It's concise, and you, you know, you're, you're very good at writing out to like in outline form where you're headed, and it's it's just very helpful to see it in a small way. And you're doing that here on these podcasts. So, just another plug to pick up uh, Ken's book, um, Christian Endgame. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. So let us know your comments and questions. Reach out to Ken via Twitter at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment here. Make sure to get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.